This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is 3, the Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Pleasure and honor as always to have you here. Much to discuss today. Kind of a nasty, great day here. Rainy day here in New York City. Hope it's a little bit nicer wherever you are. My fellow New Yorkers, just one of those days to uh, batten down the hatches as soon as you can when you get home. Throw on some Netflix. Maybe put some Cat Stevens on the Spotify and let the cat purr. Uh, so... I had a soccer coach used to say that. He said that anytime you wanted to impress a lady, you just put on your Cat Stevens record and let the cat let let the cat do his thing. And uh, we used to make fun of him because we're like record, really good good talk. So here we are uh, with the transition happening, and you have a presidential transition. You got a lot of things going on at the same time. Of course, the the media already very much invested in this story. That it's it's total it's pandemonium. It's quote I think like a I'm saying quote so I shouldn't say I think but I believe there's a quote that it's like a knife fight right now with the transition team, a lot of people being pushed for this or that role and position. Um, I, I just want to take a step back for a moment while the media continues its incredible uh, acrobatics, trying to do all sorts of contortions and twists to get back towards objective journalism such as they can do it right they haven't been objective journalists up to this point uh, but they completely cast off the mask in this election they thought that they had an obligation to do everything in their power to help hillary win and wouldn't you know media not as all-powerful as they perhaps would like to like to think of themselves still powerful obviously i i think Hillary could have lost by a lot more. I think she quite obviously would have lost by a lot more if she didn't have the media in her corner and on her side. But now they're reporting on this whole transition process. And we're hearing about the various picks and uh, the individuals that are likely to be this or that cabinet and this or that cabinet level. And you have Obama giving a press conference yesterday, a press conference yesterday in which he um, talked about what his uh, expert first of all he gave some semblance of you know sort of pat on the shoulder to trump as the next president you know let's give him a chance um and 
that's going to be that's going to be an interesting thing to watch play out, of course. Uh, but he also is being people are looking at the president now and we're hearing about all of the wisdom that Obama's trying to impart on Trump. I have to say, I find this all quite amusing in the sense that what did Obama know about uh, what did Obama know about international affairs and relations, about the military, about defense, about any of those things when he became president? We've just spent eight years with a president whose greatest accomplishments, really, before becoming president. I mean, you could say, yes, being elected to the United States Senate, okay. But apart from running a campaign, his greatest accomplishments were writing two autobiographies, one of which, based on the style, it seems that he had a considerable amount of help. Wouldn't be the first time somebody's had a lot of help writing a book, I'm just saying. Uh, but two autobiographies. Before he became president, because one wasn't enough. We needed we needed two versions of Obama's life story. And you didn't see any panic in the media then about whether there were a lot of uh, sort of veterans of political machinations. And there are people that were ready to sort of hit the ground running on day one. A lot of the stuff you're hearing now about the Trump campaign and, and its transition I just have to point out it was it was a bit absent when they were discussing Obama. Uh, It was a little different when it was President Obama's transition team. We were looking at the same campaign that gave us Rahm Emanuel. And we're going to return to good old Rahm in just a few in just a little bit. Rahm Emanuel's White House chief of staff, David Axelrod, as senior advisor, Valerie Jarrett, as senior advisor. Uh. Van Jones for a while, as green jobs are. I mean, you look at the people that were brought in to the administration, you say to yourself, this, this is the A-team? This is supposed to be, these are supposed to be the individuals that are best suited to advise in the running of the most powerful country on the planet? Valerie Jarrett, really? I think there are plenty of people that would have felt a bit of surprise at that one. I think there are plenty of people who would have thought to themselves, had they been had they been allowed to muse about these things openly, they may have thought, "Oh, uh, I see that the president puts personal loyalty above proving of competency." That's a fair statement, isn't it? I don't think anybody would make the case that Valerie Jarrett had some wealth of experience and knowledge and background and skill. That made her the best choice. She was close with Obama and the first family, and so they brought her along. And she was, from what I understand, uh, the most important advisor that Barack Obama had, at least with regard to who he, whom he trusted and who, whom he would listen to for advice and, and all the rest of it. So I just think that gives us some sense of perspective as we look at this Trump team. And people are are acting like, Rudy Giuliani, former presidential candidate, mayor of New York, Senate candidate, uh, career prosecutor. That's just a crazy choice. Oh, Rudy Giuliani, he's crazy. No, he's really not crazy. You may not like him. You may disagree with him. You may think that he is uh, someone who has comported himself a bit strangely during this campaign, although I leave that to you. Uh, But he certainly is qualified. He certainly is qualified for these roles there for which they are considering him. Chris Christie, same, you know, Mike Pence, same. You, know, you, you look at all the various uh, all the various individuals that are discussed as possible uh, 
possible Trump senior advisors. And uh, you see a bunch of people that have pretty full resumes, certainly political experience. I, we'll see who gets what job. But for now, I just think it's interesting that there's all this concern over the Trump picks. Of course, uh, Steve Bannon is getting a lot of attention right now for Breitbart and the things that were written on Breitbart. And they keep saying that he's, you know, alt-right and he's uh, a white nationalist. And we'll have to see what he does as a senior White House counselor. But they are really going after, really going after this individual. Um, and I mean, I'm old enough to remember when talking about Barack Obama's pastor for 20 years and the uh, anti-American and racially charged things that he would say, well, that was considered to be beyond the realm of discussion. Um, and now we see with Steve Bannon, white nationalists all over Twitter. That's what you see. That's what people are writing. That seems to be a very serious charge. Again, I don't know Bannon, but I'm, I'm willing to withhold uh, judgment until we see how he's actually doing and what he does. Now, I do know some people who work at Breitbart. I know some very nice people who work at Breitbart. They're not white nationalists, so I'm not really clear on how this meme has become so deeply embedded in the minds of many Americans. But then you see, so there's the transition team reporting, which is one part of this, but then there's the other part, which is what you could really call the erasing of Obama's presidency. Now, that's right off the bat going to be a sort of incendiary way to put it. He was the first black president, served for eight years. A lot of stuff happened, you know, on his watch. And he, of course, he's president for eight years. I don't mean erasing it as though it didn't exist. But certainly the legacy of the Obama administration and the legacy of his record as commander in chief, that's still something that is uh, in question right now. Um, For example, you're seeing all these uh, all these reports out there and a lot of discussion about whether Trump can pull back the executive orders that Obama put in place. Whether the regulations that the Obama administration uh, instituted and the sorts of, you know, things that were put uh, put on American businesses and on the American people will for the for the sake of continuity, they're saying uh, Trump shouldn't undo them. Why is that? Obviously, they're trying to set the stage here going forward where the media can say, oh, look at how disruptive Trump is being. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's repealing all of these things. But you see, here's at the center of all of this. This is what they don't want you to think about. Obama's legacy is one of brute force partisanship. Brute force. I sit here and ask, give me one issue that Obama truly compromised on. Not didn't get everything that he wanted. That's not compromise. I mean, actually made concessions to the other side to get something done. Give me one instance in which Obama spoke about a major policy issue or a major issue just facing the country, and those who were politically not on his side or politically disagree with him felt like at least he was taking their arguments seriously. No, this was a president who was... Borrow from Churchill, a pyromaniac in a field of straw men. Straw men being torn apart left and right, you know. Some people say, well, we should give guns to toddlers. I think that's a bad idea. You know, no, no one thinks that we should give guns to toddlers. And by the, do you remember Hillary's response in one of those debates about guns? I mean, I, I know I'm sort of 
making it sound like Obama said this, but this is how the left thinks. Hillary said that DCV Heller was about toddlers getting guns. Had nothing to do with it. Was, it was bizarre. Forget about wrong or uh, out, of, out, out of left field. It, it just was bizarre. Um, but Obama has not in any way shaped consensus on policy issues. There's nothing that President Obama that you can point to. Where you can say Republicans saw it his way because he came over to their side and they came to an agreement about what was best for the country. You look at his legacy as president, apart from the historic nature of the first black president. And, you know, he has a very nice family and it was uh, at least personally scandal free. The Obama administration was none of that sort of Bill Clinton stuff going on. And look, we give credit where it's due on some of these things. Fine. But on the policy level, the only thing that Obama really managed to get through, or rather the Congress got through on his watch that was momentous, was Obamacare, which is failing, which is failing exactly as its conservative critics said that it would, because we pay attention to reality and, dare I say, math, or at least the market, the the workings of the free market or just the market, because it's not that free, really. Uh, We paid attention, and we were right. So Obamacare is falling apart, and now Trump has said that he's going to change Obamacare, although he did say yesterday that he'll he'll leave in the two sweeteners, which was great propaganda. Yes, people with pre-existing conditions should not be priced out of health care. They should not live their lives in pain and discomfort and without uh, any economic security. We're a developed country. We have enough money that people with with real uh, chronic pre-existing conditions should have some form of health insurance. Right. So that was one of the things they put out there. And it's on Republicans for not getting ahead of that issue and allowing the Democrats to sort of seize it as their own, because the American people do uh, do have a big heart and and we do care about each other. and, And we don't want somebody to just suffer through a chronic illness and have that constantly. Look, if if we can have unemployment insurance and we can have welfare and food stamps and all these other things. We certainly can help somebody who has a chronic illness through government. I mean, we can help them through government policy or government regulation of the healthcare market. I mean, I know there's people who say, Oh, this isn't free market book. Well, yeah, I don't think we should draw the line all of a sudden around people who have chronic and very serious health conditions and say, sorry, government policy can affect everything else, but you, you're, you're screwed. You're on your own. Uh, I, I don't like I don't agree with that. I don't like that. And I think that that's it's on the Republicans that they allow Democrats to see that staying on your parents health insurance till they're 26. That's just sort of a giveaway to millennials, but also a nice thing. Trump says he'll keep these things. Trump says he will keep these things. But he'll change other parts of Obamacare. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what exactly he chooses to do. Isn't it interesting? We're going to have a Republican House and Senate and a Republican president and Repeal of Obamacare? Do we think it's going to happen? Hmm. We'll have to see. Defunding Obamacare? Do we think it's going to happen? I'm not I'm not sure. I think that they will make adjustments to it, which was really the concern that many of us had expressed all along, that there's not going to be a repeal. Um, there won't be a repeal effort, but there may, in fact, be... Uh, there may, in fact, be some tinkering done to it. But then you look at all the other stuff. Okay, so that's Obamacare, which we can we'll talk about more and and how that will factor into a Trump presidency. You look at the other things that Obama did, and 
It's the pen and the phone. It's executive order. It's regulation from the government bureaucracy that falls under the federal branch. I'm sorry, the uh, executive branch. Of course, it's federal. Those are things that Obama just decided to do because he thought they were good things. And now Trump's going to come into office and a lot of people are going to tell him, you know, these are actually not good ideas. And it's completely he's completely in his rights to undo them and to repeal them. And yet here we are already. We're going to be told that this is going to be disruptive to government, that it's reckless, that it shows Trump doesn't know what he's doing. You know, anything and everything to get their way. The left is still processing. I mean, when they're not kicking in windows and throwing rocks at cops, they're still processing what has happened here. And as they process more, they're going to realize that there really is a new sheriff in town. I mean, this is going to be an adjustment for them. They're so used to seeing just, you know, the the president signing off on some ideologically charged issue in their favor. Now they get to be on the other side of that. You and I have been sitting here for eight years dealing with it. We've gotten we've gotten good at politically speaking, taking a kick in the teeth. The other side's got to look at that now and say, ooh, it's not going to be fun, especially because, as we know, Obamacare got through when they had the House and the Senate. Ran it through without a single Republican vote. The precedents, I was talking yesterday about the national security precedents and the uh, the way that President Obama conducted himself as commander-in-chief, but also think about the political precedent. Creating a huge entitlement without a single Republican vote? We have now entered a, a, a hyper-partisan era, and the Democrats started it. I have a feeling Trump's going to take the approach that he might finish it. Go into a break here. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton, dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and, and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Buck Sexton. Sponsor of this half hour team is Yankee Hill Machine. They've been in business for 65 years. They do it all here in the U.S. of A., all made here. Made up in uh, Massachusetts, in fact. They're a family-owned business. These guys uh, love the Second Amendment. Chris and Kevin Graham are awesome guys, and they're making fantastic AR-15s and sound suppressors. They've got a really cool site. Just go to yhm.net, and you'll check it out. They've got the Black Rifle Friday sale going on. Uh, They have all kinds of cool closeout specials. You really should check it out. Yankee Hill Machine, 65 years in business, all done here in America. Top quality firearms and accessories. 
That's YHM.net, YHM.net, Yankee Hill Machine. Check it. Uh, so, this is what uh, Obama was saying a bit of yesterday. Play it. The people have spoken. Donald Trump will be the next president, the 45th president of the United States. And it will be up to him to set up a team that he thinks will serve him well and reflect his policies. And uh, those who didn't vote for him have to recognize that that's how democracy works. That's how uh, this system operates. You remember when it was it was supposed to be the Trump, uh, the Trump supporters who were going to riot and cause problems and be childish and bad. Uh, And now and now the media is back to one of their favorite constructs, the mostly peaceful protest. Which, you know, is, is, is it's just, just saying peaceful except for all the violent stuff. Mostly peaceful protest. Uh, it's, it's uh, you got to love it. It's one of, the, one of their favorite rhetorical dodges. The mostly peaceful protest. Uh, yeah, yeah, Trump won. Remember, this Obama's a guy who was just the you know, elections have consequences. I won. It's my way or the highway. He set this whole thing in motion. And the pendulum... And this is really sort of my overall sense of where we are right now in the news cycle. The pendulum is swinging back the other way against the progressives. They've had eight years of just almost uninterrupted. Yeah, there were some midterms that didn't go their way. But in terms of the policy trajectory and the general ethos and feel of the U.S. government, it's been going progressive nonstop for eight years. And now it's stopped and it's about to swing back the other direction. More coming. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Team phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. Bart in South Carolina, it's been a while, my friend. What's up, Bart? Hey, Buck. I'm calling in to cash my chips. Okay. Because you, you know I've been um, one of, uh, not one of just like the conductor of the Trump train. You've been, you've been pulling uh, the choo-choo for a while here. I've been cooling, I've been predicting a win. Even through all the uh, uh, you know controversies and scandals and so forth, so I'm a happy man right now. But I I do want to call in and uh, you had. Wait, can I ask you a quick niche. question before you ask me a question? Yeah. I just want to sure. What, what was it that made you? You always were very confident. What what was it? Was it Trump's messaging, or was it more anecdotal stuff in your own life, talking to people, and just your sense of you know where your fellow Americans were on this? You know what I mean? Was it Trump's? Were you, were you more? It's Trump, or you more the movement is there? No, I was actually not very confident in the movement, per se. I was uh, complaining to the last minute that uh, people around me who uh, should have been Trump supporters, uh, based on their outlook and economic situation and so forth, uh, didn't seem to show much interest in politics. But, um, no, I think what I saw in Trump was a a leader um, uh, based on his personality and character. And um, I think that is what most people recognized as a 
I mean, I, I understand there was an anti-Hillary vote there too, but I think it um, that's in a crisis situation, people are going to turn to a leader, and you a lot of people said that in the, in the, yeah, I think one of the exit polls actually said it that uh, they they were looking for a strong leader. So um, America is in a crisis, and I think that's what finally swayed a lot of people, including apparently a lot of minorities, which is a great thing. So what were you going to ask me now? You've answered my question, or what did you want to say? Um, the, I think even though Trump won, I think the culture war continues. And I, uh, I saw your – I listened to your interview with Dinesh the other day. Uh, Dinesh, yeah. He's a, yeah, Dinesh. He's a very smart man. And it, something he said in there kind of spark, sparked my – you know, had sparks going in my mind. He said we need to take uh, – we need to go and create um, alternatives to Hollywood – alternatives to the education system, and I think he said something else. One of the things that crossed my mind when when he was talking like that was, look, we need to replace ESPN. Somebody's got to put up some money out there and create a pure sports network. I've been told, by the way, just as an aside, Bart, or to add into this, I've been told that ESPN, I don't watch it because I don't have cable, but it's MSNBC with sports. That's that's how people have described it to me who watch it all the time, which I'm shocked. Would you you say that's fair? Absolutely. And unfortunately, I don't want you to either, but if I go to eat a restaurant or something and they're on, which, of course, they're going to be on along with CNN pretty much everywhere you go. That's what you see, especially since this, this Kilpatrick uh, guy, I believe that's his name, and his uh, his kneeling protest. at the uh, Both the NFL and ESPN have gone way off the cliff on the left. Uh, and um, there's been some some rumors that a lot of folks who currently work at ESPN, they just want to leave and make their own um, competitive, I mean, a network that competes, uh, that it has a, you know, just leaves politics out because it's, they're losing subscribers like crazy. And I think that's what we need. We need a culture war on all fronts because ESPN is watched by 50 million Americans and they get this stuff. It's propaganda. It's turning people to the left. Uh, so, um, uh, I think the next four years is, is going to be good on, on one side because we're going to have a president that's going to help us do that. But, you know, your role and Danish, his role, and many of the news networks that are that are fighting the culture war, um, uh, will, you know, need to um, carry on the torch. And, I, of course, yeah, uh, I, I, I hope, I, I hope so. to hear Look, a lot the, more of you. <laughs> thank you. The, the, digital, uh, the, the digital reality that we're in now is such that people have more choice and more ability to show their choice, in a sense, than ever before, right? It's not just that you have a wide array of possible news and entertainment platforms to go to, but there's more direct monetization of them through subscription or through downloading, even if it's free. You are able to pick and choose. You're able to click and download the content that you want. And and increasingly, I, I hope that people view that as, as sort of a form of voting in the culture war, right? I mean, who, who you listen to, what you read, who you download, all that sort of stuff factors into this. And if we want to have, uh, if we want to have our own systems or our own distribution networks for all kinds of content, whether it's news, commentary, entertainment, those who disagree with a lot of what's going on out there right now need to make sure that they're making these choices with that in mind. Now, look. You know, some Game of Thrones is a good show. Do I think it's a little bloodier and more graphic than it needs to be? Sure. Uh, do I think that it, it, it's particularly political one way or the other, other than the fact that it 
kind of crosses the line sometimes. I don't even know what the politics of that would be. Uh, yeah, and, you know, it's not all that political. So there are some things where it doesn't matter. But I think we've all seen now, given the way that various newspapers, I and mean, when the New York Times has to have the publisher write a letter saying, we promise, we promise we're going to become journalists again, you know, you know that they're scared because they've been exposed. And they thought they were going to be exposed and be part of the power group. But now they've just been exposed as backing a loser. Well, that's not cool. That's not the decision that they thought they were making. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on the creating, uh, creating our, our own stuff, but it can't be balkanized and, and pathetic, right? It, it can't be, well, we have, we have a conservative network or we have conservative movie studios or something, and they produce stuff that's just objectively not good, which means yeah. that, you know, I've said this before, I kind of wish that some of the deep-pocketed conservative donors out there, and I'm going to get in trouble with some of my, uh, some of my think tank friends, you know, stop. We, we got a lot of think tanks. We don't. We don't have a, a movie studio that will do. I'm not even. People usually think of conservative values like, oh, this has to be like family fair with a, with sort of deep Christian undertones or something. Yeah, I mean that can be part of it, but just you know, a, a movie studio where we're not all being uh, constantly lectured to about how there are 37 genders or something. You know, I mean, where, where that's not the where that's not the overriding ethos. That would be a good start. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and you know, I think um, in the past four years, we had American Sniper, we had 13 Hours. Those are great movies, right, that were produced, um, and at least with, if not overly conservative outlook, then at least uh, leaving out the, the, the liberal mumbo-jumbo and showing it, showing combat as it is. Um, and of course, to anybody who knew something about it knew exactly what was going on. So uh, there is. Wait, did you, are you, I'm sorry, I missed that for a second. Are you talking about uh, hack? What is it, Hacksaw Ridge? I haven't seen that one yet, so I can't comment oh. on that one. Uh, I said 13 hours. Oh, 13 hours. Uh, I'm sorry, that's what I missed. All right, yeah, 13 hours. Yeah, so I, I think you know both those movies were were big uh, blockbuster hits. Uh, a lot of people, by the way, who don't don't know anything about politics, were really moved by those movies, and I think they maybe maybe they started paying attention. You know what's going on? Why were we in Benghazi? What, what what's, you know? Uh, why was there no no help to these guys in, in a critical moment? What was Obama doing? What was Hillary doing? You know, they started asking questions. So I think there's potential potential in Hollywood. Uh, we're covering a lot of ground here, but yeah, I think there's potential in Hollywood to create more movies like that, um, and and start to win that culture war. You know, uh, aiming maybe. Create stuff that's aimed at the teenager uh, before they become become completely radicalized. You know, before they join whatever. Well, university. I, mean, I have to say, it's not even when we're talking about the culture war at this point. Just having movies where like America is the good guy and the good guys win and the good guys are ethical and the good you know that's yeah. increasingly. I mean, unless we're talking about superheroes, um, that seems to be rare. And there, there's a lot of stuff that is, uh, you know, meant to sort of force us to come to grips with whether it's, uh, you know, h- h- historical oppression or the, uh, the the grievances that America has created around the world or whatever the case may be. It's a very look, the, the overriding perspective in Hollywood is leftist. We all know that. Right. This is like a statement of the absolutely blatantly obvious and that filters into the content creation, even content that's supposed to just be for entertainment purposes. So this is something that we need to take on. But Bart, I'm with you. Good to hear from you in South Carolina. Thank you very much for calling in, my friend. Uh, David in Boston. You are on the Buck Saxon Show. Welcome. Thank you, Buck. How are you today? I'm all right. How are you doing? 
Oh, pretty good. Um, uh, I got something to run by you as a uh, CIA thinker and sure. see what you think. Well, the uh, the end of the Democrat Party, uh, frankly, I, I'm pretty sure it's completely over. And I'm not talking about it in relationship to the Republican Party. I'm talking about it in relationship to the leftist progressives like Hillary Clinton and uh, the establishment, quote-unquote, Democrats who have abandoned what you would consider to be American democracy uh, and are looking for every possible way to force their leftist agenda. So they call themselves progressive. You don't hear themselves really calling themselves Democrat because, you know, that's in their minds, that's old news. That's over. It's as, it's as over as the Constitution. They're, by the way, they're going to go back to calling themselves liberals while Donald Trump is in office. You watch. They're, 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 liberal is going <laughs> right. to be the preferred term over progressive. The, 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 speaking of the pendulum, the pendulum is going to swing mm. back on that, too. I, I'm wondering about that because now I'm seeing them uh, coming together. You know, uh, Hillary had you know Wall Street on her side. I mean, clearly the establishment, including the Bushes for that matter, uh, are interested in maintaining power in Washington. So now I've been reading about uh, their idea of unify, you know, the the, un- the unity party, which of course is the progressive Democrat bunch. Their idea is to unify blue and red and come up with purple. And you've probably seen this around uh, Soros's uh, purple party or purple progressives or whatever you want to call it. But what concerns me really is that the media is refusing to denounce the leftist rioting. And if you go into the history of socialist uh, revolution and that kind of thing, it starts with uh, the uh, teamwork between the establishment socialists and the propaganda arm, which ends up being the media, to tell the nation that the real vote is the popular vote and that the voice of the people, the real people, is the popular vote. And so the rioting that they won't denounce combined with these other things brings us to a country that uh, is being run by people who know that this is all the power that they're ever going to have right here right now and if they allow trump to actually be inaugurated they are going to have they'll they will lose the most power that they've ever had over this country in the world for a few decades so desperation is really uh where they're standing and i i have i have some deep concerns about how obama is handling this the fact that he's leaving the nation and he's going to fly to Greece and everything and no clue what he's doing in Peru. But, okay, <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't it be rather interesting for him to say, you know, the people have spoken and I'm recognizing that the nation really doesn't want Donald Trump. He, they, they really don't. Look at what's happening I surrender to the will of the people, and I want unity in our country, and shouldn't we have peace at last, and we'll all come together under purple. Or something to that nature. You, you look at history, and you see it. Ah, it's just a thing. It woke me up last night, so 
I wanted to call. I wouldn't worry too much about on. about the, the 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 purple revolution or whatever. I I think we're going to see that the Democrats they, they've gone too far left and they're going to have to come towards the center on a lot of stuff. But I got to leave it there because we got to yeah. go into a break, David. Uh, but thank you for calling sure. in from Boston Shields High. Uh, team, we'll be back in uh, just a few. Stay with me. Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. I know we're all supposed to be terrified about the rising tide of Islamophobia that is expected by the media, not by me, not by you, since Trump won the election. If it was so bad, if the circumstances of Muslims in this country were going to be so horrific, why do we already have hoax hate crimes? If it's so widespread, by the way, how many other hoax crimes do you hear about that aren't hate crimes? When, when was the last time you heard somebody reporting that they, you know, I don't know, there was a burglary and no, there was no burglary. They just wanted attention. I'm sure it happens, but you get these national level hoax hate crimes over and over again. The latest one is a Muslim woman in Louisiana who told police that she was attacked with a metal object and robbed of her headscarf her hijab and her wallet by two men wearing Donald Trump clothing. Oh, wow. Isn't that isn't that convenient? Just hours after Trump was elected president. So, yeah, basically two guys in Mer- Make America Great Again hats, maybe with blue blazers, white shirts and red ties on, too, uh, attacked her. And, oh, it was terrible. And the ACLU was involved and there was outrage. And they said it was because of the anti-Muslim rhetoric of Trump's campaign. Oh, but here's the problem. As ABC News reports, it was all a lie. She lied. Just went to the police and lied. Made up a story. This is raising awareness, I suppose, right? But it does raise awareness, just not the way that they would seek to. It raises awareness that this anti-Muslim backlash we're told about, along with many of the other backlashes that are supposedly happening as a result of Trump winning, it's all just hysteria. It's hyperbole. It's not happening. They need to chill and stop lying. Back in a few. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Team, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you here. Phone lines open 888-900-3393-339-33-3-3-9-3. You should definitely give a call. Love to chat. Got some spots open now on the lines. What do you think about, oh, I don't know, anything and everything? You tell me. Uh, let's get into a couple of things. One, one broad theme that you're seeing right now in the media is this notion that 
Obama needs to sort of reassure the world? Because what we really need is Obama to tell everybody it's going to be okay. This is this is ridiculous on a number of levels. First of all, wh- why would that make them feel better? Trump isn't going to listen to Obama. Obama's leaving. He's leaving office. Obama going around and telling world leaders he was what was he in Greece yesterday or today, telling world leaders that everything is going to be okay. That's not exactly if they have concerns going to mean very much. And there's no small bit of condescension that comes from all this. L.A. Times piece here. Oh, written by my uh, my classmate, Mike Memoli. Hey, what's up, Mike? That's kind of funny. Now, uh, now I feel like I shouldn't. Well, it's the title. Maybe he didn't write the title. Obama has given himself a new task, educating Trump. Educating Trump, huh? Obama's going to educate Trump. Very, very interesting to see how this how this goes. Uh, He definitely can't educate him on building a bipartisan consensus. He can't educate him on reaching across the aisle. He can't educate him on treating the political opposition uh, with respect and taking their arguments seriously. Uh, He definitely can't educate Trump on holding back from smearing your enemies and browbeating them in public and acting like only you only you act in good faith. They always act in bad faith. This is one of the classic, the classic and central tenets of Obamaism. Actually, is you know, some people say that we should like just destroy everything and kill everybody and be terrible. I say no. There's a better way. It's like no, nobody says that we should do all those horrible things. But you're creating a false dichotomy, a false separation between yourself and between the Republicans, such that your base and the Democrats can just feel good about themselves and feel safe and warm at night and not have to actually engage with the ideas of the opposition. Even to take them seriously, never mind whether you're going to adopt them or take them on. But then the question is raised, well, what exactly are you seeking to accomplish here? What are you trying to do? And with Obama, it's been, as as you've seen, he didn't get any major climate legislation through. I know he doesn't legislate, right? Although he thinks he does. Um, that's up to the Congress, and people can point out that the House has been in Republican hands. But isn't it the job of the president to find important issues and to try to coax the Congress in a certain direction and be dealmaker? There have been very bipartisan laws passed in the the past. This is something that can happen. Obama never tried to make this happen. Obama essentially said, I'm right, you're wrong, you're on the wrong side of history. Another one of Obama's favorite constructs, on the wrong side of history, I'm on the right side, the good side. And Obama would constantly just use that as a cudgel, as a, as a club to beat the other side into submission. And to the Republicans' credit on some of these issues, they did not submit. On some they did, on some they did not. But there's this definite condescension with Obama has to go around and assure our allies. By the way, did the world get a lot safer and better when Obama was in office? Did I miss something? What does Obama have to teach, really, about global strategy, about being commander-in-chief in a rapidly changing world? Is he going to lecture us all on the brilliance of the withdrawal, of his withdrawal from Iraq, the continued war that we're fighting, and we are taking casualties as recently as the day before yesterday— in Afghanistan, is, is he going to lecture us on winning that war? He doesn't know because he hasn't done it. Doesn't have a strategy really for Afghanistan except to pass it off to the next administration. 
He is slowly uh, he has slowly taken up ISIS as a real fight and is allowing Iraqis to do a bulk of the bulk of the ground fighting in Mosul. But ISIS is still very much alive and well in Raqqa, in Syria, in Mosul, where it continues to fight and in its affiliates around the world. We'll talk about that later today on the show. What does Obama have to teach? What's the what's the grand what is the Obama foreign policy? What is the vision? That's, you know, the, the Obama doctrine is what exactly? Speak a lot, do very little. What's the Obama doctrine? Uh, work with our, I mean, now you'll have people come, oh, work with our allies and build consensus with international institutions. Yeah, that's been great. It's really done wonders for the half a million dead in Syria. Those international institutions, I mean, where would we be without the U.N. Security Council in Syria? They're just dripping with condescension. And we forget that Obama was a complete novice when he came into office on all foreign policy matters and showed that perhaps that was a bad idea for the country to take this route. Now, I know people would say, well, Buck, he's not Bush. He didn't invade two countries. Okay, but we also he also didn't uh, come into a presidency where the clock was already ticking on numerous al-Qaeda plots years in the making. Uh, We had been at war with al-Qaeda, or rather al-Qaeda had been at war with us for years of the Clinton administration. We had been hit numerous times. And Bush comes into office, and we realize that we are, in fact, at war with this jihadist ideology. And Bush took the absolutely necessary measure of routing al-Qaeda and the Taliban in Afghanistan and then decided to try to go big and go bold and do something in the Middle East that would shift the balance towards democracy and human rights and inter- you know and international law and invade Iraq and well you can judge the results of that for yourself i think a lot of it was i think a lot of the problem as people will often say about communism or socialism and i i do mock them for it and so i know i open myself up to this i think a lot of the problem in iraq was in the policy level execution of it you know sort of your your paul bremers and your uh CPA, Coalition Provisional Authority, and the decision to disband the Iraqi army and debathification. Very, very big mistakes made in that whole process. But mistakes nonetheless. But say what you will about Bush, at least he had a vision, at least he believed in the country, and he was willing to act. Uh, Obama delays and thinks himself brilliant for doing just that. Delay, dither, however you want to phrase it. He sits back and allows events to take place, talks a lot about them, says he's meeting with allies, discussing. There's been a lot of discussion about Syria. A half a million dead is a lot of dead. The echoes of that war, whenever it does burn itself out, and I think you can expect to continue on for at least the first administration under Trump and perhaps the next four years of whoever wins after that. The Lebanese Civil War is probably the best proxy for what we can expect in terms of duration and timeline. 1975 and 1990, 15 years. We're already in, what, year four in Syria, going on year five, something along those lines. And it looks like it has at least three or four more years in it, and who knows beyond that. Nobody can really, uh, nobody can really make... A clear prognostication. But Obama drew a red line and didn't enforce it. How much of an impact did that have? Did that perhaps save the Assad regime, which means that the civil war will continue even further than it would have otherwise? 
I think it quite clearly did save the Assad regime because then the Russians came in on Assad's side and the Iranians knew that because we were going to get this nuke deal with them that they would have a freer hand to do as they wished in Syria because the Obama administration was having its negotiators meet with them in wherever it was, Switzerland or wherever, to talk about this nuclear framework agreement. We also, of course, have the media, the Obama administration, uh, lecturing all the rest of us on how they expect, they expect that Trump will honor the agreements that they've signed. Why should Trump have to do that? New administration. He's not, he's not bound by the previous decisions. Was Obama bound by every decision of George W. Bush? Of course not. Although he wanted to pretend to be when it came to the Iraq withdrawal. Oh, the status of forces agreement. We couldn't change that. No. Yeah, he could. But they wanted, an, they wanted an out. They used that as the out. And then when things went bad, they said, well, Bush made us do it. Oh, isn't that a surprise? Isn't that a mature way for an administration to run the country? So they say that Trump has to continue on with the Iranian nuclear agreement. He has to continue on. The answer is no, he doesn't. Is it smart for, is it wise for him to have some continuity with some of these policies? It depends on what we're talking about. I think we'll see some areas where he decides to continue or at least uh, delay the discontinuation, sort of let us roll into things slowly. But in other things, he's going to pull the plug. Elections have consequences. I think I think Obama said that. He definitely said, I won at one point, just to sort of shut down all the critics. I won. Elections have consequences. Phrases that the left had to know would come back to haunt them at some point, and now they can be deployed for the same purpose for Trump and his Republican Congress. Elections should have consequences, and now the left, Better get ready for it because the precedent we warned we warned them. We gave them fair warning. The precedents that have been set as a result of the Obama administration and how it conducted himself, they leave open a, quite a pathway for those of us on the conservative side of things to pretty much I was gonna say to run wild and do whatever we want. That's not true, but oh yeah, it's gonna get partisan. Unless Trump waivers which he might it's going to get partisan it's going to get ugly got to go into a break i'll be right back this is the buck sexton show the blaze radio network Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. One area in which we know there's going to be a lot of nasty back and forth between left and right has to do with immigration. Immigration. Um, there are a lot of sanctuary cities in this country, cities that decide that they're going to uh, not care about violations of federal law that are occurring with illegal aliens in their jurisdictions, right? The very presence of illegal aliens, of course, being illegal. Rahm Emanuel. Oh, yeah. Remember him? Former White House chief of staff. Oh, he was a great guy. Right. We should love only the best people for the Obama administration. Rahm Emanuel is out there. And he's mayor of Chicago. Now, this is what he says about his sanctuary city. Play it. 
It is important for families that are anxious. It is important for children and adolescents that are unsure because of Tuesday to understand that the city of Chicago is your home. You are always welcome in this city to be clear about what Chicago is. It always will be a sanctuary city. To all those who are, after Tuesday's election, very nervous, there's filled with anxiety has been spoken to, you are safe in Chicago. You are secure in Chicago, and you are supported in Chicago. The city continues will provide services, and your ability to access those services will always be there. They will not waver or change because of administration. They may change, but our values do not. This is okay. a city of inclusion. So there are some problems here. Progressives have gotten so used to eight years of Obamaism that they fail to remember or they fail to recognize that politics are not permanent. It's not. Things change. Policies change. Oh, yeah. Uh, this notion that Chicago is able to just do as it wishes without regard to federal law, not true of many other things. What would happen if a city were to say, well, we're not going to, uh, you know, we're declaring ourselves free of federal taxation, right? People would laugh. It would never fly. And I know the way they try to get around that here is, well, this is an issue. Sanctuary cities are, are going to pretend that this is an issue of the federal government's authority. We don't have the authority. Well, if the federal government can tell <laughs> the federal government can tell local government, as they did under the Obama administration, that they can't help. They cannot even choose. The, the federal government told local government. This was what happened in Arizona. It's very important that we all remember this, that they will not allow. They will not allow. States using their pretty expansive police powers, by the way, to assist the federal government in enforcing immigration law. Now they're going to say that they have no that that they have no interest in helping, so they're just going to refuse to help, right? But the federal government intervened in 2010, uh, and you had, for example, Eric Holder, the Attorney General, saying, "quote Seeking to address the issue through a patchwork of state laws will only create more problems than it solves." So they shut down Arizona's law that would have allowed uh, allowed the police, allowed authorities in Arizona to help determine whether somebody was legal or illegal in the country and to pass that information along to the federal government for the purposes of enforcing federal law. This happens, by the way, all the time. Do, do, do you think a, a beat cop who learns about a possible terrorist plot, do you think he says, oh, no, I'm not going to get the FBI involved here. I don't, we don't want that. No, that's what happens. Uh, the moment that they think that it, is a federal is you know it's a federal jurisdiction uh, or it comes under federal jurisdiction they pass the case along they do this with all sorts of crimes all the time but you have Rahm Emanuel saying this you have the I believe the chief the LAPD saying that they will not they will not partake in any efforts to help to, to help uh, the Trump administration deport people well if they're not going to help I think the federal government may have to get in the retaliation business Remember, this is the same federal government, or rather, under this administration, you do what we want when it comes to school policy, and 
or, or else we'll cut off your funding. That's what Obama said about letting boys use the girls' bathroom, basically. So what happens when Trump comes in? Again, using the precedent set by Obama. What happens when Trump comes in and he says, you tell us whenever you come, you tell us somebody's immigration status whenever you come across an illegal, or else we're cutting off uh, federal law enforcement funds to many of these cities, which, by the way, are very important to some of the large departments out there. The NYPD, LAPD. Yeah, we're, we're going to cut back federal funds that help you with your law enforcement efforts. Can the federal government do that? I would think so. They're certainly threatening to do it with schools. Why can't they do it with law enforcement? Now, I know what the response would be from LAPD and others. They will now, if there's a spike in crime, you know, this is like the, the, the firemen that when the budget's cut all of a sudden, you know, they're not getting to any of the fires in time. You know what I mean? And that could happen. I don't think firemen would do that. That would be unethical, but they could. There's going to be some backlash, to be sure. There's that term again. Well, this just goes to show you that the pro- progressives still don't get it. They have they've set in motion this uh, federal. I mean, the federal leviathan's been set in motion for a long time, but this incredibly overpowering chief executive position with the president. And federal intrusion into all these different local matters and not leaving things up to states or better I put it is not believing in a federalist system or in federalism. Uh, they didn't want to allow the states to handle things. N- now they may start to realize, you know what, we should we should have allowed states to do more things. Maybe the federal government shouldn't just dictate everything from D.C. Problem is it's too late. And I know many of you are going to take the position, as I understand it, that, well, you're still going to adhere to principle and you still don't think the federal government should be telling all these different places what to do. But we've been living under eight years of a progressive creeping authoritarianism from D.C. Now we might have a creeping authoritarianism from the other side, something to keep an eye on. Sometimes we may like what they what he does. We'll see. But there's still a a violation of the principle underway that the federal government should be involved in only things that are it is empowered to do through the Constitution. It should not do all this stuff that it's constantly doing all the time. Sanctuary cities, anyway, it's going to be quite a uh, uh, quite a battleground, I think, going forward. Because if they, what are they really going to do? They're going to stand behind the we don't want to help deport illegal aliens who also are criminals, because that's what Trump's talking about right now. So now sanctuary cities mean literally sanctuary cities for actual criminals. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Tim, we're joined now by Troy Slayton. He is a partner uh, at Floyd and Kelly, and he's also a head of criminal defense. I'm sorry, I'm trying to see what it says here. Head of criminal defense, uh, head of their criminal defense division. All right, great. Very good. Troy, thank you very much for calling in. I appreciate it. Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. That was what was not showing up on my screen. Great to Get have you. Get the mouthful, show. Buck. Thank you. Uh, so, all right. So, talk to me a bit about the backlash that the electoral college is getting right now. You say this is poppycock, balderdash. People need to learn more before they start saying we should throw out the electoral college. Or you say something along those lines. What do you say? 
Yeah, I mean, look, our founders were terrified of a pure democracy. And that's what people that are crying out for abolishing the Electoral College are really asking for. And the word democracy is not mentioned anywhere in our Constitution. And so, why? Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So you know, our our founders knew from their careful study of history that democracies just don't work. They implode. It's uh, Dennis Prager likes to say that it's it's the equivalent of two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner, and and it allows for um, essentially this mob rule. And by having electoral college, it forces candidates to go to everywhere in the United States and not just the most populous urban areas. Now, there's this argument that's in making the rounds popularized, I believe, on the website Vox.com, that the Electoral College just exists as essentially a vestige of a deal made to help slaveholding states. So this is all really a legacy of slavery. That's what the Electoral College is. What do you say about that? Well, that's not entirely true. Of course, it, it, the Constitution was a grand compromise. And yes, uh, it, would, it would not be truthful, it would not be honest, intellectually honest for me to say that that wasn't a consideration. The, the southern states were concerned that uh, if they were to join this union, then there would only be a president from Virginia. And by... by Essentially, the, the, the slaves weren't allowed to vote, and we, we all know about that three-fifths number that's in the Constitution. So by uh, allowing for the Electoral College, the slaves were, were counted uh, as three-fifths for the purposes of representatives in the House of Representatives and for the number of electors, because the number of electors that each state is given is based on the number of representatives they have plus their number of senators. So you get a minimum of three, and it goes up from there. So now when people look at this and they say the popular vote is what should matter, the popular vote is the will of the people. Troy, what's the to those listening, what's the best counter argument that you have to that line that a lot of media outlets and many prominent Democrats are pushing right now? Well, you know, look, if winning were only about getting you know, the most possible votes, um, then the candidate would just go to the big cities. But, you know, this this forces for example, in this particular election, we were talking about certain states being the, the, the swing states, being the state that, that, that had to be uh, won. And it turned out that uh, the Electoral College map was a lot different, and it was a lot broader. And this forces candidates to go everywhere and to search not only for the most number of votes, but for the most states. So we have essentially we do have a democracy in each state. We have 51 separate democracies where we vote for the slate of electors. What do you think about this effort that's underway right now? Uh, there's a story on the blaze.com where they deal with this. It's, it's making the rounds on the Internet that there are some who are trying to convince the electors to just bail on Trump and make somebody else the president. What do you first of all, theoretically possible? And also, what do you think? What do you think would happen if they did do that? 
I mean, I guess hypothetically it is possible, but it's not going to happen. The electors in each state. So a lot of people don't understand when we vote for president on that Tuesday in November, we're not actually voting for president. We're voting for that state's slate of electors. So if the Democratic Party wins that state, then in 48 of the states, then all of the votes go for that slate of electors, and then the Democratic Party in that state selects the electors. Same thing if a Republican wins. There's two states that give proportional um, allocation of their electors, but that's really that, that, that's an outlier. So um, I think that in, in each particular state, um, the electors are party faithful. They're, they're, it's an honorary position given to people that are high ups in the party. And I just don't, seem that ha- don't see that happen. It's happened a few times throughout history. I think Ronald Reagan got one electoral vote in uh, 1976, but it, it just does not happen very often. And it's never been enough to sway an election. I guess it's, it's theoretically possible if some sort of major thing were to happen, if the president were to, uh, a president elect were to die uh, between the date of the, uh, of the vote in November and the date in December when the electoral colleges meet in each of their respective states. They don't meet as one body altogether. There's not some room where 538 people get together. It, it happens in each state, and then they send their vote off to, to Congress. Um, so I just don't see that happening. I also want to ask you about you're a criminal defense attorney. Hillary Clinton may receive a pardon from Barack Obama. What do you think about that? The president has the the power to pardon and president, uh, future President Trump could also pardon her. Um, It's really up to up to them. You don't even have to be accused of a crime in order to. Uh, be pardoned. And it's not up to the person to accept it or not. It's not like Hillary Clinton or Bill Clinton, for that matter, who's apparently also being investigated with regard to the Clinton Foundation. Um, It's not up to them to accept it. And I think it could work uh, politically in a few ways. Um, If President Obama did it, it would it would really go uh, far for um, uh, throwing red meat to to his base. I think that a lot in the Democratic Party would would like it. On the other hand, it kind of brands her a criminal because why would you need a pardon unless you had done something criminal? A pardon is really a a, a, a check on the executive power. It's a limit on on the executive power. Um, it, what, what's also interesting is it's only criminal. It doesn't bind uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office from going after them on civil fraud or IRS or civil RICO actions. So it keeps them out of prison, but it doesn't necessarily mean that Hillary... And it would be interesting, to, let, let's just assume that she was pardoned. Uh, that would seem to raise a lot of flags for, for folks suggesting that there was some... There has to be some impropriety if you need a pardon. Yeah, exactly. And let's say Barack Obama doesn't pardon her and uh, future president Donald Trump pardons her. Uh, that, that would be really interesting as well because it, he could say, well, I'm doing this to move the country forward, just like Ford pardoned Nixon. Um, I'm, I'm doing this to move on so we're not embroiled in, in hearings and 
uh, a lengthy criminal proceedings and things like that. So uh, as, as a way to bring people together in the interest of comity, uh, this is what I, I'm going to do. And it may upset some of the Republican base that were chanting lock her up, but it would be kind of a brilliant move if Obama didn't do it for Trump to do it because um, – you're not sure whether the the investigation would go anywhere anyway, but if you pardon her, that kind of brands her a criminal forever. That would be the the end of her political career. Oh, I see. Yeah, that, that's a, very annoying. No yeah. So so you get the the benefit if you're Trump and you if Obama does it, I think that the downside for Clinton is quite obvious. Although the upside is she doesn't go to prison. But if Trump does it. Then and she can't say sorry. I don't want it. It's not like a Nobel Peace Prize that she could just sort of right. leave on the table and say I don't want it. If if Trump does it, he gets credit for unifying the country, and he's forever branded Hillary Clinton a criminal without her actually ever having a trial or being or being prosecuted. Kind of, it would be a kind of a brilliant political move. That's very interesting. I hadn't, hadn't thought about that. That's very Machiavellian. I, I dig it. I feel like Trump, if, if he gets a hold of this, might run with it. That that seems like it would work to me. Very little. And there's what could Hillary do other than say, I didn't want this pardon. OK, well, you yeah, still got pardoned could, by the president. Exactly. She could go out and say, you know, I didn't want this. I don't need it. I'd like the Justice Department to fully investigate me. But she could say that all she wants. They can't. Once she once she's pardoned, that puts a stop on any federal prosecution. All right. Fascinating stuff. Troy Slayton is a criminal defense attorney at Floyd, Scarrett and Kelly. He has been named one of the top 100 trial lawyers in the U.S. And he is also often on Fox, Fox Business, CNN, HLN. Follow him on Twitter at Troy Slayton. Troy, great to have you. Thank you very much for making the time today. Thanks so much, Buck. Uh, phone lines open 888-900-3393. Team, we will be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show. Rocky in Nebraska, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome. Shields high, Buck. Thank you so much for taking my call. Shields high, Rocky. I just, caught the tail, I just caught the tail end of your interview, and I understand the whole concept, but um, I'm very curious about how you might feel about that as far as uh, clearances and uh, the fact that really what we're talking about here with her is pay-for-play and compromising, compromising our security um, it sure sends a negative message to all of us that have held clearances and respected the rule of law. Doesn't that seem to be a bit of a problem? Oh, sure. Abso- absolutely. I mean, look, there would be an enormous trade-off if Donald Trump did, in fact, pardon Hillary Clinton. There would be a huge trade-off in that you wouldn't see uh, the full measure of justice uh, that could be done if she were investigated and prosecuted. But... I, I was just—I hadn't thought of it in terms of how he would, in a sense, he'd be saving Hillary, but he would be putting the final nail in the coffin of the Clinton dynasty. Uh, there would no longer be a sort of Clinton political name uh, that carried any weight. I think you'd have a—you'd yeah. have an impeached former president and a pardoned 
former Secretary of State as husband and wife. Yeah. It's a pretty yeah. amazing set of circumstances I, I when actually, you think about it that way. Yeah, I actually, I actually love, I love, and and it and it gave me a new way of looking at it, and I agree with it. I just don't know that the magnitude of this crime deserves to be uh, forgiven. I mean, it's it's almost like uh, presidents will just be like, you know, I can do whatever I want because, you know, the other side's going to go do this. It's a gesture of goodwill, and uh, they won't, you know, it looks bad for our country if we, you know, prosecute her, and that, you know, she's had power all this time, so it makes us look kind of like pretty dumb. But I think we've actually been pretty dumb. We've, we've let her get by with things for decades, and, and she just seemed to be getting worse and worse in her crimes. I just think she's gone too far. That's just my opinion. I do understand the concept, and I love it. It does look like kind of a win for Trump if he does that. And it might be good for the country. That's for sure. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a real there's a case to be made for it. I, I, I that's why when I was initially asked about it, it was a great question we got from a caller last week. I said, you know, I really need to think on this because I, there's a lot of intersecting interests and and there's a lot of different ways you could take it. So I think that yeah, I heard I heard that call too, and and I agree with you there. I understand the concept. I just don't know that the magnitude of the crime uh, deserves forgiveness because all in all, I mean, if it's pay for play and the you know, I mean, the facts just really line up. I don't know if you remember, but way back with uh, the IRS scandal, you know, I was assistant administrator, and I've known all along that these crimes, uh, there, there's a way to find out, I mean, what goes on in an electronic network is completely traceable, and there's many, many guilty parties, and it's just been a travesty for so long that the guilty parties have been sheltered. And that's that's my two cents. I don't think she should be forgiven. I think we're doing too much to forgive people at the top. The power structure is the wrong way. We, the people, need to take control, and we can't forgive these people just because they're in high office. Thank you for letting me uh, speak, Buck. Absolutely, Rocky. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for being part of Team Buck. Shields High, great to have you. Uh, Let's get Sid in Indiana. What's up, Sid? Yeah, I was just curious. Uh, We always hear how... uh, illegal immigrants or you know they're just out and about trying to do good for their family but and they're not criminals uh, last time i checked isn't tax fraud tax evasion social security fraud forgery conspiracy and these days even when it be considered identity theft i mean are those not all crimes it doesn't matter on your intent last i checked if you do it are you not wrong and what do people actually think about that Yes, it's not the hard felonious crime, you know, murder, rape, which, well, of course, there is a percentage of that. But in the end, why isn't the IRS all over these people? Just one to ask. Mr. No, it's illegals are in this country and they're not. People say they pay taxes. It's not really true. In some cases, though, they'll file taxes with a fake Social Security number and they'll get a refund. Uh, but there's any there are a lot of crimes that that are a part of being here in an illegal status I think for uh, for what the Democrats want for a comprehensive immigration reform, there'd have to be a sort of mass amnesty for all those crimes, too. And, and that's or just a decision that there would be no enforcement of them. Uh, but it's it is complicated. But remember, Trump is only talking about people that have committed. Uh, I, I'm when he's talking about the, the two to three million, he's talking about people that have committed crimes that aren't illegal status crimes. Right. It's stuff that's. It's drunk driving, it's assault, it's rape, it's any number of things, you know, drug trafficking, drug dealing, and 
the Democrats are standing firm on how even that's a bad idea. So, Sid, we'll talk more about this. Thank you for calling in. Team, we've got more. Stay with me. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome back. Time for a Buck Brief. You are entering the Blaze Threat Ops Center. This is a secure space. All outside comms are down. Prepare to receive the Buck Brief. We're joined by Catherine Zimmerman. She is an AEI research fellow and research manager at Critical Threat. She's an expert on all things Al-Qaeda. Catherine, great to have you back. It's great to be here this afternoon. So I know you contributed to this this uh, report uh, that's been put out by AEI on the various affiliates outside of Iraq and Syria of the Islamic State. I was just hoping you could sort of give us the uh, the broad stroke picture of, of how are the affiliates doing, and then we'll go through some of the main ones and, and, of course, get to Yemen, which I know is your particular area of expertise. But in general, what has been going on with uh, ISIS affiliates outside of Iraq and Syria? Certainly. Just a small correction. The report was put out by the Washington Institute. So I oh, I'm sorry. Credit for work. Yes, of course, of course. The Washington Institute. <laughs> but but yes, I, I was a contributor and um, the Washington Institute convened a group of experts and brought us together to talk about what the Islamic State looked like outside of Iraq and Syria since we had been so focused on the caliphate in, in Raqqa and Mosul and we need to understand how it's functioning in Libya and Afghanistan and elsewhere. Um, it actually varies very much by region and by the caliber of the group that was that was on the ground at the time. Um, so when you look at how ISIS is doing inside of Libya, it flipped an entire network, a group that had already controlled a city and therefore was extremely strong uh, at the time of its inception inside of Libya. It was moving into an already developed group, whereas elsewhere um, in Yemen, for example, it didn't manage to flip an entire faction of AQAP. It got parts, bits and parts of cells. Um, so it didn't have that sort of strength that we saw elsewhere. Now, in the case of Libya, that was a primary concern outside of Iraq and Syria for a while. But the Libya Islamic State franchise has been under considerable pressure in recent months. Is that is that the finding that the group came up with from uh, WINEP? Uh, it has been under a lot of pressure under recent months. There's the the U.S. is backing some forces on the ground that are going after the Islamic State inside of CERT. I think one of the concerns, though, is that uh, the Islamic State isn't limited just to CERT. And, of course, we're operating within the Libyan civil war context. And we've seen time and again partners become distracted by more pressing objectives and interests to them than, than the ones for the United States, which is defeating the, the terrorist organization on the ground. And the Caucasus ISIS emirate has received some attention in, in this piece, but they've been sending fighters elsewhere, it seems, more than engaging in at least high-profile activities in the Caucasus region. What, what's going on there? 
Very much so. I think one of the one of the main challenges to operating inside of Russia is that the Russian counterterrorism strategy is literally to annihilate the group and towns and villages where the group is based. Um, so it's very, very hard for insurgencies to get started inside of the Caucasus. Um, but noting that, I think just over the past couple of days, we saw Russia had detained a, a, a cell of ISIS suspects that were planning attacks. Um, so certainly there are many more terrorist attacks being planned inside of Russia, and it's unclear how successful this group actually is. Are any of the ISIS affiliate groups, or I should say ISIS franchises that are out there, um, out, again, outside of Iraq and Syria, we know that right now the battle for Mosul is underway in Iraq, and, and in, in Syria there's pressure primarily coming from, well, the coalition of Russian, uh, Russian Iranian, and Syrian, uh, Syrian Assad forces. Um, but outside of that region, are any of the ISIS affiliates ascendant or getting stronger? Yes. Um, when you look at what is what ISIS is doing inside of South Asia, I would say that it is trying to build capacity there. Um, it took a group in the Philippines, the Abu Sayyaf group, and that, that group may be positioned to, to advance. There's also questions of whether ISIS will be able to resurge in places like Libya, um, our analyst here at, at AEI, Emily Estelle, has looked at it and has noticed that the, the group has essentially started reconstituting in the southwest and is positioning itself to target t- the Tunisian state. Um, and, and the counterterrorism strategy that we're employing inside of Libya is really focused on the control that ISIS has over a single city and not over the strength of the organization as a whole. How much of ISIS's success at this point, or or rather, how much focus does it really just put on the spread of the ideology and the propagandizing of its state creation projects over actual success? It it seems to me that as as long as there are ISIS franchises that are popping up and, and claiming to be, they sort of keep the torch lit, if you know what I mean. There's this, uh, they, they can keep pretending at least to be a state-building project when at best, in some places, they're more of an uh, insurgency under pressure. That's exactly, exactly the question that experts are asking, especially because what we're seeing is the rise of this idea of the virtual caliphate, where ISIS is taking the sense that it, it no longer needs to hold terrain in order to be the caliphate. It simply needs to exist as an idea, and in the cyber world, um, and that's incredibly dangerous. What we've seen with ISIS media is that it will claim attacks that it never even conducted. Um, so it has incredible appeal to individuals looking to take a local attack and escalate it to the global awareness. Because if, if you claim the attack for ISIS, it gets picked up by the ISIS networks. Um, the other thing that ISIS does is really try to emphasize its global presence. So what our team picked up last month was that the Islamic State informally recognized a group that's operating in the Sahel. That group had split away over a year ago and declared allegiance to Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS, Um, but there was no formal recognition until recently. And so the question that we're asking is, why now? Is it looking to maintain its narrative of being global, or was it waiting for that group to prove, as it has, that it has some operational capacity to conduct attacks? And Yemen, which is the area I know you focus on most, there has been an there has been an ISIS franchise uh, operating there for some time. How is how is it doing? And it's also in the midst of of a civil war, a messy civil war that you've been on the show before to tell us about. But specifically, the Islamic State in Yemen is doing what right now, and what are its prospects going into 2017? The Islamic State in Yemen is still very much, I would say, cell based. 
um, with small groups operating on the ground. It doesn't have the sort of widespread support that it does elsewhere, and it doesn't have the strength to coerce that support. And what we've seen recently is that the Islamic State is actually providing some assistance to tribal militias that al-Qaeda is also helping out. Um, and that's a that's a real change. It's, I think, a reflection of how the Yemeni dynamics are working, where the sheer brutality and the methods that are signature for ISIS are so repugnant to Yemenis, and they're not accustomed to that, that it actually has done ISIS a lot of harm in terms of its recruiting effort, especially now since the rumor has it, ISIS doesn't have as much money as it used to to pay its fighters. So ISIS is the more extreme option in the Yemeni context between al-Qaeda and ISIS. If you're if you're a tribal group and you're picking who your allies are, are going to be, ISIS is essentially more violent and crazier. It is, but it doesn't have any greater skill set than al-Qaeda does. All of its individuals uh, came from al-Qaeda, had the same bomb-making bomb skills, um, and I would actually say that al-Qaeda's are a little bit more sophisticated. What ISIS has in Yemen is the willingness to attack soft targets. Al-Qaeda does not do that inside of Yemen. Um, and so the high casualty attacks that we've seen from ISIS are not because it's hitting hardened military structures that show a significant capability in terms of attacks, but because it's driving a car bomb into the middle of a line of police recruits and blowing it up. Um, and that's actually not gaining it any popular support from Yemenis. Uh, what is uh, ISIS included in this? But what is the most powerful faction in Yemen right now? If If one group was to sort of emerge as as the de facto government in Yemen in 2017, which one would you place a bet on it being? <laughs> I don't know if I can place money on Yemen at this point. Um, I think the single strongest faction is going to be the Al-Houthi Salah Alliance because the interests and objectives are much more closely aligned than any of the forces opposing it. Um, that being said, when you're looking at the internationally recognized Yemeni government, it has external support from Saudi Arabia and and the UAE and the United States and other international actors. So that has given it a lot of clout on the ground that doesn't match the the, the support and, and strength that it actually has. Um, I think it's interesting to see the contest going on now where Secretary Kerry just said that he brokered a, a, a ceasefire between al-Houthi Salah forces and the Saudi-led coalition. That's the coalition that's conducting airstrikes and ground operations in Yemen. And the Hadi government, this is the government that we, the United States, recognizes, rejected that ceasefire. Um, so it's it's a huge political mess right now, and I think that we're trying to sort it all out. Catherine Zimmerman is an AEI research fellow and research manager at Critical Threats. You can follow her at Katie Zimmerman on Twitter. And uh, Catherine, we appreciate having you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, we're going to hit a break, team. Phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. We'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show. You know, team, while the left is march, literally marching around the country, though it seems that might have died down for the last couple of days. Oh, I should point out that uh, that it seems a majority of the protesters in Portland, which had the 
ignominious distinction of being the place of uh, some of the greatest destruction and most riot-like protests. How about we just call them riots? Uh, They weren't registered to vote or didn't vote in Portland, so who wants to place bets on how many of them are outside agitators that just converge on places like Portland that they've probably converged on in the past in order to cause trouble? Interesting also, isn't it, that they tend not to, these sort of black block style protesters, black block, remember, as a tactic, not a specific ideology, uh, that they like to go into these very uh, liberal progressive areas, um, and that's where they commit all their mischief, perhaps because they realize they would be very, very unwelcome in the more uh, conservative districts of the country. Perhaps there would be some greater understanding that, uh, or there is some understanding that they would really not be uh, beloved in, oh, I don't know, Fort Worth. You tell me a conservative, a conservative city and name it, or, or a rural, a more rural town that does not tend to share the sort of uh, weird Marxist anarchic worldview that these protesters seem to have. Um, all right. I, I just that that's all going on, and, and I think that that's just sort of as a side note that's interesting. But they still also believe, or we're still being told, that we're going to continue to be told this, that the opposition to Hillary Clinton and the failure to elect her is some sort of a deep moral stain on all of us, and we are bad people, and, and, and all the rest of it, and that it's rooted in misogyny and racism, because that's much easier than the left realizing that, one, it's just gone, they've just gone off the rails. I mean, they're no longer, they're pushing for things that are no longer normal. And when I say no longer normal, I mean, no sane person can really believe this stuff, but they pretend to embrace it anyway, because if they didn't embrace it, that there would be limitations on their ideology. And the moment they accept limitations, perhaps, then they also have to accept that there are things that are true and things that are untrue. And really that the the best and purest kind of power is that which makes or that which allows people to force others to believe whatever they want, no matter how untrue and crazy it may be. I give you the... With all that said, I give you the Wesleyan University open house that was this was tweeted out by an editorial writer at The Wall Street Journal, uh, uh, Sarab Amari. And here you go. The open house is a safe space. Now, I know look, you listen to this show and you know, you're up on what's going on across the country. And you understand that already on Tinder, I believe. Is it on Tinder? I think it was on Tinder. Let me check and see before I. I don't want to uh, malign the uh, wrong dating app here. I think, yeah, Tinder offers, for those of you not familiar with Tinder, it is a means of meeting people for dating purposes where you swipe one way or the other depending on the, let's be honest, the attractiveness of the individual. And if they find you attractive, well, then you can go do things that attract, you know, that people attracted to each other do, like have coffee and see a movie. Um, but, Sofrab Amari tweets out this, uh, Wes- oh, sorry, so 37, 37, count them, 37 gender options now on, uh, on Twitter, oh, no, not Twitter, on, although that probably is true too, Tinder. Here is what Wesleyan University's open house is saying, that it is a safe space for, a uh, safe space for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, Transsexual, queer, questioning, asexual, I can't read the next one because it's a curse, polyamorous, bondage, disciple, 
dominance submission, sadism, masochism, communities, and for people of sexually or gender dissident communities. And they write out the acronym for this because you're, you're familiar with LGBTQ or at least LBGT. Uh, I don't know if the Q is for queer or questioning, um, but it's for one of them. They write out the full acronym acronym at Wesley because, of course, they have to be inclusive. I mean, unless you're like a white male Christian and then you're you're to be uh, cast out of polite society. Um, But you can't make this stuff up. The acronym for the safe space at Wesleyan's open house is L-G-B-T-T-Q-Q-F-A-G-P-B-D-S-M. I don't I mean you can't even pretend to say this thing out. You want to do that again? L G B T T Q Q F A G P B D S M. That is the that is the safe that is the acronym for just how safe the safe space is at Wesley University. A school that is Pretty difficult to get into, I might add. I mean, a school that has it's selective in its admission and it's an admissions process. I don't even know. I, I like to think that I have a reasonable vocabulary. I speak on radio for three hours a day. I write some stuff. I do some things here and there. You know, intel officer in the past, that sort of stuff. And I don't even know what some of this stuff means. Um, there are a few words they use, and one of them I can't. I actually I cannot repeat to you because it's there's a a curse word in the description of the what is the, the of the sexual community they're calling it or gender dissident community. I don't even know what some of this stuff is. Um also I didn't know that asexual was was technically a gender. I thought that was just a description of somebody who like wasn't particularly interested in that sort of stuff. Uh, now, I know this is just a snapshot, and we could sort of you could say that and, and we could sort of dismiss for a moment if we if you wanted to, you could dismiss this stuff as, oh, well, I mean, come on, Buck. It's, but this ex- I just told you at Tinder, which is the really the the dating app that is bigger than any other right now, at least in apps. I think Match.com is still the biggest of the uh, online dating sites. But Tinder has embraced this stuff. Tinder is now you know, has 37 genders and lots of universities are embracing this stuff too. And in some, at some level, I think a lot of the, the Trump voters, as much as I know the left wants to believe that it's all racism and this is like a, this is sort of a rebirth of the Klan and all this crazy stuff. At some level, Trump voters look at all this and must think to themselves, I mean, what the heck? And not just Trump voters. I mean, even those of you who didn't vote for Trump or who whatever, just listen. If you're listening to this show, you probably think to yourself, what? Uh, because this just makes no sense. It, it is nonsense in the truest in the truest sense of the word. It's bizarre. And and that they have to that they feel the need to bend over this far backwards. It's almost like they're playing a game where they're trying to come up with new forms of gender and sexuality and they can just the more they can throw in the better there's a part of you that may think to yourself okay well why does this really matter but keep in mind i mean this is increasingly the, under at least obama the federal government has embraced this kind of rhetoric and this sort of thinking and gender is a spectrum and there's all these different gender identities and I, this is sort of you can boil it all down to the the left has just lost its lost its mind 
it's not even it's not even recognizable from what it was 10 years ago where perhaps it's gone into areas and it's gone to length that were never thought possible before so anyway, i just had to show that this is the wesleyan open house uh wesleyan university open house and man it is definitely a safe space it's a safe space for a lot of stuff but i don't even know what some of the stuff is i feel like an uh, old fogey who's out of touch all right team we're gonna talk about china in a few minutes stay with me back in a few The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, we're joined now by our friend Gordon Chang. He's the author of The Coming Collapse of China and Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. Gordon, great to have you. Thank you so much, Buck. Uh, so, Gordon, already we're hearing some stuff coming out of China about what would happen if Trump takes certain actions. People are talking about trade war. There's this whole what's going to happen to apple and apple products what do you see what do you see going on here what's real and what's hype yeah um global times which is a publication controlled by people's daily which is the most authoritative publication in china threatened um tit for tat retaliation they said if trump were to for instance impose a tariff so they mentioned apple boeing and american farmers as groups that would be affected Now, I think a lot of this is just uh, noise. Um, Boeing doesn't have very much to worry about because even if they don't buy a Boeing plane in China, it means that they got to buy it from Airbus, which means that Airbus sells one less plane to Brazil because they can't, you know, they can't keep their production uh, up, which means Boeing is basically going to sell to Brazil instead of China. Now, Apple would have a problem because, um, you know, there's too many smartphones in China. Um, but I think American farmers will be okay because, again, um, if they're not going to sell to China, they'll sell to somebody else. And do you think that the the talk of a Trump trade war is this just scaremongering, or do you think that that could actually happen? Well, I think it's first of all, uh, Trump cannot start a trade war with China um, because we're already in one, and only one side is waging it, and that's the Chinese. The United States at some point is going to have to retaliate for essentially predatory trade practices, which over the last two or three years have gotten worse as China's tried to close up its markets. So, <clears throat> excuse me, the U.S. is going to have to do something. Um, whatever we do, um, as the Chinese point out, is going to hurt us. But there are no no-cost solutions, and we're obviously bleeding right now. So something's got to be done. And you know, I can't say whether Trump will do the right things. But he does get high marks for indicating that something has to be done. What would you tell President-elect Donald Trump now, Gordon, if we got you to sit down with him for a few minutes and, and he was saying, look, Gordon, tell me, you know, I know China has a problem. We agree there's a problem here, but I need to make sure I take the right steps. What would you say he should do? What would be constructive from the U.S. perspective? Well, I think that something um, he needs to show political will, that he is willing to take tough steps. And that might be an across the board tariff, maybe not 45 percent, but clearly he needs to do something. And what I would say is that um, this is going to get ugly and that he's got to be able to demonstrate that he's determined because the Chinese are going to try to break him. And if they break him on the first thing, it's going to be terrible for American business going forward. So um, 
I, I think that he has to go forward on doing something, something that'll catch the attention of the Chinese, and he's got to show that he's willing to see it out. Now, what is this uh, investment treaty that's being rushed at the end of the Obama term between the U.S. and China? I'm not sure people have heard much about this. Yeah, uh, excuse me. Um, there's a bilateral investment treaty, which has been negotiated now for, I think, something like seven or eight years, um, which would give the U.S. more access to China and China more access to the U.S. I don't think the Chinese really have that much to gain from a treaty, um, so they have been drawing things out. Because the U.S. is very open in investment anyway, uh, but clearly the Obama administration is trying to rush this through. Um, the trade now, rounds are now about two weeks apart, which is an indication of an intention on the part of the administration to conclude this. And I don't think this is going to be a good thing for the United States. I think that we should just sort of wait and see how all this stuff plays out, including Chinese threats to retaliate against American products. They're already trying to shut us out of their market um, especially with this new cyber law that they just enacted last week. Um, and we've got to do something. So it's amazing because we were always told or the, the sort of conventional wisdom among many journalists and, and the chattering classes, pundits and, and, and all the rest, that we have to be so careful because we don't want to upset China because they'll take retaliatory economic action against us that will really hurt us. But from what you're saying, Gordon, they're already taking actions that are hurting us. Trump is, Trump is right on that point and has been right throughout the campaign. Absolutely. And by the way, last year, our bilateral trade deficit with China in both goods and services was $334.1 billion. So we have 334.1 billion reasons why we don't have to worry about the Chinese. You know, they understand that because the trade balance is so much in their favor, they really don't have very much in the way of tools apart from bluffing us. They've been very good at bluffing us. But, you know, we have, um, you know, because we're the ones suffering the deficits, you know, trade war is, is fine with me. You know, bring it on, because only the Chinese at the end of the day are really going to suffer. Their economy right now can't stand a trade war. I don't worry too much about them, but I do worry at, at a, about us being bluffed out by them. Now, you have an interesting piece here up in Forbes. China's building a wall. Any lessons for Trump? What's the wall of the Chinese? I mean, obviously, China is very famous for one wall, but we're not talking about that one. No, we're talking about a wall, which is mostly a fence um, between China and North Korea. Uh, and they've been building this and reinforcing it and improving it since 2006. Right now, the Chinese have decided a new strategy. And while they are still reinforcing their wall, they are now <laughs> excuse me, building a military base um, just across the Tumen River from North Korea. And I think that they're going to try to in, uh, enforce their border through mobile units, through soldiers. And this is an indication that static defenses don't work. And essentially for us, the lesson is, you know, when we look at Mexico, how are we going to look at that border and protect ourselves? Well, there's a lot of things that we can do, but a static defense probably is not going to be the best of them. So you think that there are some there are some takeaways then for Trump if he's trying to figure out how to secure our, our southern border um, in terms of dealing with China militarily, by the way, do, do you foresee China challenging Trump early on with the, either the South China Sea, some of the projects and, and military expansionist efforts that's been involved in there? What 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 can a Trump administration expect from Chinese uh, military muscle going into to start off 2017? We can expect a challenge. I mean, the Chinese challenged uh, President George W. Bush early in his first term, 
April 2001 with the Hainan plane incident. And they also challenged President Obama in a series of incidents starting in March 2009 uh, in the South China and Yellow Seas. Um, so we can expect them to try to take Trump on. And actually, they've got more incentive to take Trump on than they did with either Bush or Obama, because as we've been talking about, um, Trump has been talking about protecting the American economy. And so the Chinese need, from their perspective, to defang him as quickly as possible. So I think that we are going to see some sort of belligerent act early on. Now, the Chinese can surprise us and not do it. But if they're playing according to their old um, playbook, I think that, that we will see something go seriously wrong in the early months of the Trump administration. How is the Chinese economy doing, by the way? It hasn't gotten much attention in our in our media recently. We've we've heard in you know in recent years that there might be a slowdown, that they're lying about the growth. And where is China right now economically? Because that seems to be an important indicator of where it may go militarily and otherwise. Yeah, they've claimed six point seven percent growth improbably for each of the first three quarters of this year. Um, they they probably are growing half that, maybe a little bit less. They have been able to stabilize their economy over the last month or two, but they're doing it at great cost because they're accumulating debt much faster than they can pay it back. So China has um, an economic issues which they can't deal with in the context of their political system, which will not allow the reform that they need to implement. So we're just watching a slow motion train wreck because they're just trying to prevent uh, basically a downturn that they should have had along with the rest of the world in 2008. But they've sort of been able to muscle their way through it with a super stimulus program. Eventually, this has got to end up in tears. Now, what should the uh, what should a Trump administration coming in? There's often talk about human rights in China and, and our willingness or lack of willingness to sort of push use U.S. diplomatic uh, efforts to try to push for for human rights and for for women's rights and such in China. What should we be trying to? Uh, what aspects of America should we be exporting? I don't mean products. I mean ideology into China under a Trump administration. What should we be trying to get them to? How should we be trying to get them to reform? Well, I, I think that we need to have a very strong democracy promotion program because they've got a very strong authoritarian rule program, and we need to counter it. Um, we've got to remember that uh, Secretary Clinton in February 2009 said that the United States was not going to push human rights with China because we had bigger issues to handle. And then the month after that, they engage in a series of extremely belligerent actions against two unarmed Navy reconnaissance ships in the South China and Yellow Seas, which is what I just referred to in terms of challenging President Obama. I think that these events are directly related because the Chinese thought that um, they could push us around after hearing Secretary Clinton. She was trying to say, you know, we'll be cooperative with you. But what the Chinese heard was, oh, no, you know, since we're not willing to talk about our values, we must perceive our position to be weak. That was a fundamental mistake. So we need to push democracy, human rights, all, all human rights, um, because that'll show the Chinese that we really mean um, that we, st we stand behind our values and we stand behind our companies. They're all related. And uh, finally, Gordon, uh, on, on North Korea, we have a new administration coming into office. It doesn't feel like there's been much progress with the Obama administration on any issues related to North Korea, at least to the sort of casual observer. Uh, what should the Trump administration's posture be vis-a-vis -vis, uh, vis -vis the, the Hermit Kingdom? Well, the first thing I think we need to do is bolster missile defenses. And the Obama administration has worked on an agreement with South Korea to deploy the terminal high-altitude area defense in South Korea. That was announced in July. Um, 
as Secretary Clinton said when she was running for president, we should ring China with missile defense. That's not a bad idea um, because the Chinese are supporting the North Korean missile program in ways which are very dangerous to the United States. We need to show the Chinese that we are going to put a cost uh, on them for doing that. And any way that we can add those costs, whether they relate to missile defense or otherwise, I think is a good thing because then China will realize that they can no longer do these things and not suffer any consequences. Gordon Chang is the author of The Coming Collapse of China and North Co- and Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. Gordon, always great to have you. Thanks for giving us a call. Oh, thanks so much, Buck. Uh, the phone lines are open, team. If you want to call in with some thoughts as we get ready to uh, get into our last segment of the show here, 888-900-3393. Also, if you want to share some thoughts, you go to Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Always a good time to uh, or always a good place to muse on all things Freedom Hut. And, and I'd also ask you now that I've got you, please do go to the Blaze.com slash Buck dash Sexton, which is the uh, the new page there. Uh, you can see what I've got going on. You can download the show, and please do share it with a friend or two. Uh, that's how we grow Team Buck, and uh, that's how the Freedom Hut keeps the lights on. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Radio Network. You know, I know I've made some jokes about how we all need to stop with this Trump is Hitler thing. And people then come to me and say, but come on, who's really saying that Trump is Hitler? And there's this person who writes for Upworthy who is on Twitter's verified account that made the statement that Trump not taking a salary is, quote, this is literally out of Hitler's playbook. <laughs> and then goes and like cites some history book that shows that that Hitler decided not to take a salary on his chancellorship. Well, I mean, it's out of Hitler's playbook, I guess. Uh, It's also out of Mike Bloomberg's playbook, Herbert Hoover's playbook, uh, the one dollar man after the First World War. I mean, you go down the list of people that did not take a salary, that do not need a salary, and it's a lot more than just Hitler, but I, I feel like this is a classic. This is a classic moment with the left here, where I mean, Trump, Trump is they can't shake this. Trump is Hitler. Trump is Hitler. No, he's not Hitler. Okay, and only Hitler is Hitler. And sort of ad Hitlerian arguments are are almost always incredibly flawed and hyperbolic. Oh, but I just, I just think that was really that's just so amusing. People have lost their minds. Yeah, tr- Trump's not taking a salary because he's Hitler, is what they're saying. Other people didn't take salaries. Whatever. Josh in California you're on the Buck Sexton Show. What's up? Hey, how's it going, Buck? Shield tie. Shield tie. Hey, you know, I was I was uh, listening to you talk about uh, President-elect Donald Trump giving Hillary Clinton a pardon. I know that's kind of a hot topic right now. But, you know, and the reason people are saying that, you know, or it got brought up is to bring the country together and try and, make the country feel like one. But I think also what we need to talk about is President Obama not trying to do stuff in this lame duck session, you know, this this point in time when he's about ready to leave office, trying
trying to pass these things, you know, these trade agreements, just to basically spite Donald Trump and spite the country saying, hey, I'm still in power and I can still do this if I want to. That kind of tears the country apart as much as it would if, you know, Donald Trump maybe wouldn't give Hillary Clinton a pardon. You know, yeah, I mean, you're, you're going to see a lot of, well, Obama's the president, so what he does is fine. Uh, and when Trump is a the president, they're going to say the same kinds of things are bad. I mean, this they don't care about the hypocrisy here. It's just about power. Uh, and, and whatever Obama does for the next few months, the media is going to protect and say that it's great. While they're telling that, well, they're going to make the argument at the same time, Josh, that Trump needs to continue Obama policies for the sake of continuity. And they're also going to say that Obama should do whatever he wants, even if it's disruptive to what Trump will want. Right. So they will, they have their cake and eat it, too, as always, because they're progressives. But, uh, Josh, that's it for Time That in California. Thank you for calling in Shields High. Uh, team, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. It was good fun, as always. Um, I do hope you download the show. If you're not following me on Twitter and Facebook, I'd ask you to do that, too. Back tomorrow. Going to have a lot of show. It's already going to be Wednesday. Wow, this week is flying by. Uh, Best part of my day starts tomorrow at 12 Eastern with all of you. So until then, Shields High. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.